Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I'm Rebecca Scott Bray, um, this, uh, and I work here at Sydney Uni. And this event is part of a series of events that um, I've organised over three weeks that centres on deaths in contested circumstances and research and practice around them, including their impacts and how we as communities respond to those deaths. This event was motivated, and it's no exaggeration to say inspired, by the work of these people on the panel and the research and the advocacy teams behind them. So we live in a time of great death positivity or great death literacy, where there's a push for better conversations around end-of-life matters. And the aim really is to support a good death that's informed by rights and responsibilities. But there's a whole other set of contexts in which death and how we approach it are deeply marginalised, where death is premature, traumatic in state institutions, undeniably impacted by contexts of race, class, gender and disability, for example, where death is avoidable, where there are legacies of preventable death. And these deaths bring us into the realm of public inquiry and coronal investigation. The initiatives that we discuss tonight and the questions they raise around the right to know are part of a wider set of initiatives, many of which have been born in the digital age and enabled by its technological advances. So Deaths Inside, which Lorena Allen will speak to tonight, um, and Deathscapes, uh, which will be spoken to by Savendi Pereira and Joseph Pugliese, are not the only ones. So there are others, such as the University of Queensland's National Deaths in Custody Project, which was launched in August. There's also the Australian Border Deaths Database, the Facebook uh, page Counting Dead Women by Destroy the Joint. There's the work of Judy Watson and her map, The Names of Places, Mapping Indigenous Massacres, and Lyndall Ryan, Ryan's Colonial Frontier Massacres in Central and Eastern Australia, 1788 to 1930. And these initiatives all measure and seek to account for in different ways the devastating legacies of violence in this country and also internationally. Measurement is horrifying, but it's also useful and practical. Numbers and maps do speak, and they are acts of remembrance. Classifying and counting a death is a translation that has meaning, but context is also incredibly important. The panel members tonight and their work, much of which stretches not just over the last year but uh, over decades, all draw attention to the importance of context and also therefore the processes that society has set up to respond to deaths in contested and controversial circumstances. And as we'll discover tonight, their work reveals that we can't just describe these systems and practices that investigate death, we need to interrogate and understand their impact how they are experienced, how they are encountered, and what they do. Who bears the failings or the successes of any system of death investigation? It's the bereaved, the families, friends, and communities who have lost loved ones and who live without them. And this event was motivated by the idea that we would do well as a community to better understand the hardships caused by avoidable, contested deaths by accounting for what has and what is being built across public space that informs our right to know. So I'm going to introduce our first speaker uh, for this evening. Lorena Allen is Indigenous Affairs Editor for The Guardian. Lorena is descended from the northwest New South Wales and has worked in journalism for almost 30 years, which I was very impressed by. You were horrified by it, but I was deeply impressed. She's trained broadcasters, mentored students, and was the media officer for the Bringing Them Home inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families. Lorena is a key member of Deaths Inside, a project by The Guardian which tracks every Indigenous death in custody since 2008. And I should note that uh, Deaths Inside has been nominated for two Walkley Awards, uh, as has Breathless, the podcast about the death of David Dungay, Jr. As Rebecca said, uh, my name's Lorena Allen. I'm the Indigenous Affairs Editor at Guardian Australia. Um, I've been in the media for almost 30 years. One of my first reporting jobs as a young cadet journalist in 1989 was to go out to Walgett on a very wonky twin-engine Cessna with the Royal Commission inquiry staff to investigate the death of Clary Mean, who died at Walgett <coughs> Police Station. Uh, he, was, he was a survivor of Kinchler Boys Home, which I later found 
and we all as a nation later found was a horrific place to have survived. So for him to die in the way that he did at Walgett Police Station really had a very profound effect on me. And I'd also like to pay my respects to people here tonight who've lost a loved one in this way. Um, I want to acknowledge that this discussion is challenging and to recognise what you have been through. So, and also to be, so to be revisiting the issue of deaths in custody 30 years later is, um, was an opportunity to see how far we've come as a nation and the short answer is not very far. So I'd like to show you the database that we created at Guardian Australia and talk about some of the, the reporting that flowed from that. But I guess I'd like to start by explaining why we began this project. It began three years ago as the inquest into the horrific circumstances of Miss Dew's death in the South Hetland lockup began. And my colleague Calla Walquist started to ask how many people, how many Indigenous people have died in custody since the Royal Commission handed down its final report in 1991. Um, it was surprisingly hard to find that statistic. Calla scoured the latest available reports. She rang around and made data requests of every state and territory, every jurisdiction, uh, corrections and police. Many of them just said they didn't have the time or the resources to give us the numbers. And so to get an up-to-date figure, I mean, the Australian Institute of Criminology does track deaths, but there's often a couple of years delay between the, the report and its public release. So um, to get an up-to-date figure, we decided we'd have to compile the coronial findings from every Australian jurisdiction, as well as track any media reports or press releases from custodial agencies. And we'd also have to monitor social media for reported deaths in custody because most prison services in Australia don't tell you about a death in custody unless you ask about it. Um, if you ring them up and ask to verify a report, they'll tell you, but they don't issue a statement unprompted. So that's what we did. So from May to August this year, we, the reporting team, has read every coronial finding relating to an Indigenous death in custody from 2008 to 2018 and followed up on reports of cases that are still awaiting inquests and cases that hadn't even got that far. For the years 2010 to 2015, we collected the same information about all deaths in custody. So to have a large enough size to have a comparative um, and to produce a sort of meaningful analysis comparatively. So in the end, we examined 463 cases over that 10-year period, and 147 of them are an Indigenous person. And initially, we decided to use the issues that the coroner Ros Fogliani used in the treatment and care of Ms Du as our guide, and so we checked each case as we read that coronial report against a number of data points. And um, then we added other issues as we read other inquiries and based on what we knew of the treatment of other people like David Dungay Jr., Mr Ward in WA and Kumajai Langdon in the Northern Territory. So at this point I'll just talk you through the database and how we arrived at the numbers. This is a disclaimer. Um, it's very simple and straightforward. We wanted to acknowledge and advise people that it contains, you know, some pretty challenging information, so there was a warning there as well. This is our findings. So in the end, of the 483, cases, uh, 147 Indigenous people, you can search by year, by cause of death, and by the issues raised. So here is a litany of systemic failures. And this is just 10 years. We had originally wanted to go right back to 1991 and track every single death from the end of the Royal Commission, but we soon realised that it was beyond our capacity to do that. It's an enormous piece of work. This took us months, five people working full-time for months. So how we decided, I mean, these, is, these data points that we uh, put together will help you search this database that each of these pop-outs are a person. Each of these, these pop-outs is a life lost to the system. So this, this it shows you the kind of information we track. Where you see names and photographs, names or photographs, they are used with the express permission of the families. We, um, 
very important to us that people were aware of it, supported it, and knew that his misdue. Her family were incredibly supportive of this project. Wayne Morrison's uh, sister Latoya was also very supportive. Eric's family, my family, Tony Chatfield. Here you see for, for this young man, it's incomplete because his inquest is yet to happen. So we're tracking, we're tracking deaths that are happening now. We, I have to say though that there have been four more in deaths in custody since we published in August. So we've got, we're, we're on, they're on our list to add in, which is a sad fact. So um, we're not criminologists. What you find here is just us reading coronial reports and collecting data points that we thought were in the public interest to know. And our aim isn't to provide more statistics, but to share the stories behind those statistics. Stories like an Aboriginal woman with a chronic injury and a tooth abscess was denied pain medication for six weeks after being trans transferred to Townsville Women's Prison in 2010. Her medical records hadn't gone with her, so they didn't believe her when she said she was in pain. And apart from being issued with Panadol from time to time, the authorities didn't believe she was in need of relief. Six weeks after transfer, she took her own life. The coroner said the pain was a contributing factor in her despair during her final weeks. An Aboriginal man suffered a cardiac arrest and was made to walk to a guard station to use a portable oxygen unit before they called the ambulance. Another Aboriginal man died of a heart disease, heart attack, lying on a concrete bench in the Darwin Police Watch House. The coroner in that case said, a sick, middle-aged Aboriginal man was treated like a criminal and incarcerated like a criminal. He died in a police cell which was built to house criminals. In my view, he was entitled to die as a free man. We wanted to ask why he died at all. Prisoners known to be at risk of self-harm were held in cells with hanging points or placed in cells alone when the Royal Commission found that two out was the important uh, thing to have for an Aboriginal prisoner who was at risk of self-harm. Two out meaning sharing with another person. These are all, and what we found over just this 10-year period, these are all systemic issues that continue to occur and contribute to deaths in custody despite countless pages of reports and coronial recommendations. So we didn't want to add to that pile of reports. We wanted to find a way to cut through that by telling the stories of the people. So what do we find? 147 Indigenous people have died over the decade. 407 have died since the end of the Royal Commission in 1991. More than half the Indigenous people who died in custody since 2008 have not been convicted of a crime. In contrast, the majority of non-Indigenous people who died in custody were serving a prison sentence. Indigenous people are dying in custody from treatable medical conditions and are far less likely than non-Indigenous people to receive the care they need. Of the 16 Indigenous women and girls who died in police or prison custody since 2008, half didn't receive the appropriate medical care, compared to 33% for Indigenous men and boys. These are just what we found from our research. Agencies like police watchhouses, prisons, hospitals failed to follow all their own procedures in 34% of cases where Indigenous people died, compared to 21% of cases for non-Indigenous people. Mental health or cognitive impairment was a factor in 41% of all deaths in custody. But Indigenous people with a diagnosed mental health condition or cognitive impairment, like a brain injury or FASD, received the care they needed only half the time. And what we found time and time again was these people were in jail. They should never have been in jail. They need community support. They need rehab programs. They need intervention to keep them out of prison. They do not belong in prison. Families are waiting up to three years for coronial inquest findings in some states and an average of two years for, to get to the inquest itself. The longest average periods are in South Australia and Western Australia, but there are heavy delays all around the country. And we had some New South Wales coroners, former and current, contact us during the, this process to, to say how um, pleased they were that we were focusing on this issue. And of the 147 deaths that we investigated, 43 were of people who were born since the Royal Commission handed down its findings in 1991. With this project, uh, we thought long and hard about how we wanted to represent this many people. Originally, 
the plan was, as we often do at The Guardian, used, using a face wall. We do that, we've done that for people who've died in um, offshore detention. Um, in this case, it wasn't a good idea. It just, I was, had real reservations around that. So what we did was we, each, per, each one of these cubes is a person, but we didn't want people to be confronted by the faces. Um, we wanted to do this as carefully as we could. So we contracted an artist, Charlotte Allingham, a young Rotary woman based in Melbourne, um, to, we gave her a brief, I gave her the brief, and she designed these very um, beautiful illustrations that we thought were abstract enough that gave it, you know, like the feathers of Miss Manager of here, beautiful. So um, they're thoughtful images. She designed um, them for a man, male, female, and gender neutral as well. And she's brought another resonance to the project that I think um, takes it away from the hard and the merit and gives you a chance to engage with it on a, on a human level, speaking to the heart. And we use those images where uh, people didn't want their photographs, uh, photographs of their loved ones to be used. We'd like to think we worked in a trauma-informed way, as trauma-informed as a media organisation working to strict deadlines can be. And I think we've learnt a lot, and I think if we had more time, we would have done things much more carefully. But we've worked with NATSAs and a, a number of PECOT groups who've you know, been really supportive of the work. We've used initials where people haven't given us permission to use names as well. We connected, we, I'd like to, to acknowledge the UQ database, the Deaths in Custody database that they, um, that they developed, sort of in parallel to ours. Um, we, we as in a way, have more freedom because we can tell those human stories. We're not as bound by the, the, the strict and perfectly acceptable ethical constraints of the university research team. As, as journalists, as media people, we could work much more closely with the families. And I mean, there's... There's people in there who are members of my family. So we wanted in the, in the reporting to tell the human story as well as the numerical one and to make sure that those voices were at the forefront in their own words or not if they didn't want to participate. I didn't, we didn't want people to feel like they had to be compelled to relive their trauma for the sake of a new story. So we're not activists or advocates. We're just journalists and we're... I'd like to think reporting on issues in the public interest and in the interests of transparency and accountability. We saw that monitoring of deaths in custody had slipped quite significantly and recognised there was a need for investigation of the why and the how as well as the who. So this res the result is a resource that we hope will be used by activists and advocates, researchers, lawyers, community people, and most importantly families who we've seen have lost someone in the justice system and are trying to navigate what can be a very complex and dense and re-traumatising perennial process. So I might leave it there. Um, uh, next up we've got Savendrini Pereira and Joseph Pugliese, who are both together speaking about their initiative, Deathscapes, um, and they'll be assisted by Michelle. So Savendri Pereira is John Curtin Distinguished Professor at Curtin University and she's the Joint Lead Investigator of the ARC-funded International Deathscapes Project, which maps race and state violence in settler colonial societies. Savendi has published seven critical books on issues of social justice and combines her academic career with participation in policymaking, public life and activism. And she's co-founder of Researchers Against Black, Pacific Black Sites with Joseph uh, and Joseph Pugliese is professor, professor and research director at Macquarie University and also joint lead investigator of Deathscapes. Joseph has published acclaimed books and articles on the intersections of social justice, race, ethnicity and racism and together with Savendi founded Researchers Against Pacific Black Sites, which is a group working to expose violence exercised on Australia's asylum seekers and refugees. Thank you, Joseph. Um, there are a number of crossovers with um, the Guardian project that um, Lorena outlined, but I think we might leave those for the discussion and just start by saying a few things about how the Deadscapes project uh, took shape. So Deadscapes is a transnational, trans, deaths in custody, transnationally 
and tracks the deaths of asylum seekers and refugees and indigenous people in settler states. And the thing that is actually uh, the, the kind of framing analytic of the Red States project is the settler state. I guess when Marina was talking, she mentioned the um, increasing deaths of indigenous people um, post the 339 recommendations. And uh, one of the things that we really wanted to come to terms with was um, we're not criminologists, and I want to say that up front, and our site is not, a, is not criminologically oriented. In fact, we made a, a number of decisions which we will talk about um, in, in more detail in a moment um, in order to avoid the sort of criminolo criminological objectification of uh, really traumatic cases. But we'll talk about that in a moment. When we were looking at the increasing deaths in custody of Indigenous people, but also Wendy and I, over the last two decades, have been looking at Australia's uh, lethal refugee and asylum seeker policies um, and the deaths in detention both onshore and on, uh, offshore. We wanted to understand what the mechanisms were that were driving these increase in deaths. And as Sidendi said, we saw that really the crucial prism through which we could understand these mechanisms was the settler state. And you know, as Patrick Wolfe so famously said, there's a logic of elimination and replacement. So we saw both the prison industrial complex within which the um, indigenous deaths are occurring as coextensive with that process of elimination, removal, and then killing, either by design or, you know, in inverted commas, accident, as the coroner would say, or natural causes. But in fact, there's a systematicity there that kills people, and it's state-driven through the complex apparatus and, uh, of the state, and, and its operatives, its contracted operatives. Um, so it's not a purely state enterprise, it's also people profiteering uh, from the state. And that process of elimination is crucial, as Patrick Wolf would say, because what it does is it also replaces, it attempts to replace indigenous cultures, indigenous lives, with an expansion and consolidation of white settler rule. And Uncle Ray always sort of said to us, it's not a question only of indigenous people, that's enough, but he also said there's a connection here to the border deaths, the immigration deaths, the refugee and asylum seeker deaths. Because they are allowed to do that. The settler state is allowed to do that because it's actually usurped our sovereignty, you would say. It's, just, it's usurped indigenous sovereignty. So how do you consolidate your theft of indigenous sovereignty, which has never been ceded by any indigenous nation? Well, you exercise control over the borders. Otherwise, you're not a nation state. And so we saw a nexus here between offshore and onshore deaths in detention, deaths in custody. And we saw an analytic that would begin to explain the violent state mechanisms in Turkey that were operating to consolidate settler rule. So um, we, we started thinking about the indigenous and the refugee as kind of limit figures of the settler state. Um, the indigenous the indigene is a figure that actually challenges the limits of the state in time because they, they, uh, they uh, precede the state, um, you know. And we also thought about the spatial borders of the settler state that are challenged by the figure of the, by indigenous nations, uh, who, as Joseph said, who, whose own rights of sovereignty and rights to offer sovereignty are taken away by the settler state that then asserts its own sovereignty by withholding hospitality from others. So that was the link. And we started thinking um, in the year that our, our project started, there were two deaths that really triggered for us this whole project, and that was the death of Miss Jew uh, of septicemia after, you know, being taken in, uh, as many of you will know, for uh, unpaid fines. 
and the death of Hamid Kazai in, in Manus Island also upset the senior. Uh, and we thought, how, how do two young people who are in their 20s die of septicemia? And we started thinking about what are the technologies by which these kinds of deaths are produced. So the Deadscape site is really our attempt to make these connections. And I'm, I'm sort of getting a bit ahead of myself because Michelle uh, was showing you, and, and we kind of didn't call attention to it, but maybe, Michelle, we can go back to the Richard Franklin quote. Uh, this was a central quote for us. Uh, Richard Franklin was one of the um, original workers on the on the debts on the debts and custody uh, royal commission, and he's made uh, some films that many of you may, may know. Um, no way to forget, which is about the trauma of working on the royal commission. And then he kind of said this thing, and I should say that Richard is on our ethics advisory board. One of the things that he said that really struck us. Uh, was that we had to humanize what had been dehumanized. So we don't use the, the statistics, you know, as, as you were saying earlier. But you, you use words, you use words, you use the power of images. And so that was a kind of uh, manifesto for us when we began. And we started very much using artwork. So Michelle was also showing an artwork by Mazia. Mohammed Ali, which has been used, um, you know, the flyer for this, for this event. But again, the idea was to um, bring these unknown names um, to give them some um, shape and form and to use languages other than the criminological, other than the statistical, other than the enumerative. So we're not actually doing, uh, in the Deadscape site, we're trying to, yes, tell stories. We're trying also to connect and to identify technologies by which the state, um, um, let, you know, marks these bodies as other, as not part of the state, therefore makes them able to be killed with impunity. Um, so, what we, the way in which we try to sort of map the patterning that is emerging, because we're looking at three settler states, Canada, the US, and Australia, and we know that people have been looking at indigenous deaths in custody and border deaths in their own silos, but we thought the settler state, as you know, having given birth by, by Britain, um, has got parallel systems in place, and we thought that Precisely because there were these parallel systems, we could begin to track the sort of patternings that would show the recursive manners within which the settler state eliminates its designated racialized targets. And what we tried to do too was to develop a whole series of key terms by which then to connect the various geolocations, so to speak. And the key terms, such as the weaponization of the landscape, would work, say, in letting um, Refugees at the border, Mexico border die in the desert, or letting indigenous, uh, sorry, refugees on, on the maritime borders of Australia founder off Christmas Island and, and die there. And so that becomes one way of, of looking at the way in which the state literally lets die its designated, designated subjects. So if you go to the key terms, they are peppered throughout the site and they create nodal points of connection across these different geolocations Canada, US. Australia. And um, as Selene was saying too, one way in which we wanted to capitalise on a digital site was to show the multidimensionality of these issues by deploying the, 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 the multimodal media that the digital site offers us. And so we've got audio recordings, audio visual recordings, artworks, written testimonies and hyperlinks to a whole series of resources as a way of fleshing out the complexity uh, of these issues, but also as a way of speaking different languages to different audiences, because we didn't want this to be primarily a site that spoke only to academic audiences. 
And we, we saw the, the visual, uh, as, as you did, really as a way, one of marking uh, particular losses and deaths and traumas from communities who offered some of the artwork that's on our site, but also as a way of convey, conveying different messages and different meanings to people who weren't necessarily text literate. And the feedback we've got is that different communities have really responded to these multimedia, multi-modal ways of speaking truth to power, effectively. We, we actually should say that the site has these different sections that you can see up there, um, engagements, galleries, and um, a number of artists have very generously given us permission to use their artwork on the site. Um, Stephen Copland, who's here, is, is one of them. And really, we kind of want the site to work, as, as Joseph has said. Laterally, we want people to go back and forth between uh, the different sections of the site. We've got a section called Dispatches, in which we really talk about the actions, the day-to-day -day actions in which we are involved in. Uh, we've started sitting in on inquests and writing daily reports of inquests, for example. These are some of Stephen's art artworks that Michelle was just showing now. And uh, yes, these are the dispatches where we've been going to inquest and writing up on the inquest. So the site is somewhat um, anarchic, can I say it's anarchic? I, I think I can say it's anarchic, but we want it to work like that because we, we see that this as a really multi-dimension issues. And in the case, case studies, we actually layered um, historical and present so that um, you can actually make certain connections. For example, in the, in the story of Mr. Ward, that we um, tell in a lot of detail, um, we found footage. Mr. Ward, uh, Mr. Ward's family um, was um, seen as one of the last families to, um, quote unquote, come out of the desert. And Mr. Ward was actually the subject of a film by Ian Dunlop. There's footage that shows Mr. Ward as a baby in his mother's arms. And in telling the story of Mr. Ward, we actually use the story of uh, his community, talking about the building of a road. They talked about the building of the road as the sort of cutting through uh, their country and their land. And we sort of, we use um, the category of transportation to think about the different ways in which, and the category of what we call necrotransport, to think about the different ways in which people have been transported, including uh, indigenous people from all over WA being transported to Rockness Island, which is um, one of the uh, prison islands um, that um, is, is is actually central to the to telling the story of WA. So we try to layer um, both um, in time and in space. Um, I think one final thing, I'm not sure how we're going to think, um, is that Sylvendi and I have always seen each other as um, working as academic activists, which is you know, often um, shirked upon, and we mentioned that in the university. And one way in which we wanted this to be um, an, an academic activist site was one, to bring the sorts of analytical skills uh, and rigor as, uh, that academics can mobilize. Because what we want to do is to actually not just document and describe these cases. That's important, of course. But uh, as academics, we wanted to deploy analytical skills in order to expose the mechanisms of power that are actually constitutive in the ongoing recursive production of these deaths. Why? To stop them. And so, really, that's the ultimate goal of our site. And that's why we, it's also an activist site. Um, uh, so, we've got an analytical framework in there in order to speak truth to power by exposing, by laying bare what we see as the systemic structures in place creating these ongoing deaths. Racialization, necrotransporters, as Andy mentioned, the mobilization of the prison industrial com um, complex, the, privatis the, the, the privatization of prisons. <laughs> Um, and, and the colonial system itself, all a complex ensemble apparatus 
that keeps reproducing death. So our aim really, and you know, Phil could speak more to this, is to lift the cover, expose the mechanisms, and then just say, right, these mechanisms, which purportedly are for the good of the people of the state, are actually killing targeted populations. Before we end, just um, because Rebecca was um, speaking about the um, red dress, uh, red dress, redress, I don't know if, if you're familiar with this campaign, the missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada. And I just wanted to show, we haven't actually finished this case study, but I wanted to show it um, because we are doing a transnational case study of uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. And, the, uh, and the, the sort of framework that we use here is really that of the killing state. So it's not that women are just dying inside. They're dying outside. They're dying on roads, you know, um, in, in lonely places. But um, we use the notion of the killing state, that it's the state that creates the conditions for this, uh, for the deaths of these indigenous women. And this is why we use the term indigenous uh, femicide. We take uh, the Mohawk scholar, um, Audra, Audra Simpson, who says, um, you know, the state doesn't have to always kill. Its citizens will do that for it. And of course, the corollary of that is that citizens will do that for it with impunity. You know, so um, this is something that um, maybe if you are going to wear a red dress tomorrow and if you or a red shirt and you're going to um, look at this, you know, that, that that's the... Um, that's what's behind it, the making visible of uh, these invisibilized deaths of indigenous women. Great, thank you very much, Joseph and Spendi. Um, our final speaker on our panel is uh, Phil Scrayton, uh, Professor Emeritus from Queen's University, Belfast. Phil is a widely published critical social researcher over many decades, including on deaths in custody, the politics of incarceration, marginalisation of children and young people and the impact of disasters. He's very well known for his work with Inquest, of which he was a founder member, and he wrote Hillsborough The Truth. And he led the groundbreaking research for the Hillsborough Independent Panel into the 1989 Hillsborough disaster, which killed 96 men, women and children. And he's worked closely with bereaved families and survivors for decades. Thank you, Bill. Uh, first of all, um Thank you very much, Rebecca, and um, to my fellow panelists, thank you for allowing me to be part of this. Um, Before I start, I wanted to just uh, give some background. Uh, I am a founder member of Inquest, um, United Campaigns for Justice, and the uh, work that we've uh, done down the years, both in terms of the organization but also in terms of working with families, really is the motivation uh, for our work. Uh, as has already been said, I think one thing that I share is undoubtedly uh, a, an academic activist. There isn't any question in my mind that um, the academy is responsible for uh, passing over critical theory and critical analysis down the years. And we've never lived at a more dangerous time, and I mean danger only in the intellectual sense, a more dangerous time for critical analysis to be threatened within our universities. It has been uh, one of the few places where the kind of work that we all do um, has been enabled by what we would say is the right to critical analysis and the right to critical thinking. But I think that those days are really in the past, and with all of the corporatization of our universities, our work is under threat. So there's never been a more significant time, as I've just said, to have those others, and those brothers and sisters in other universities who are doing this work, using their skills, in order to retain the most important issues of our time in the public eye. In that sense, I suppose, 
the way we would describe, or I would certainly describe myself, is, um, is as an activist. So, I wanted to start by talking briefly, and it has to be brief, about contested deaths and the state. Uh, just who are we talking about? Just where are these deaths occurring? Quite clearly, um, internationally, we're talking about the police, stop and search, deaths during stop and search, during arrest and during detention. We're talking about prison, remand, convicted, the block, and by the block I think most people know what I mean, which is the punishment block, or the segregation unit, uh, or the prison hospital, euphemistically they're called. We're talking about specifically the dynamics that surround the deaths, not only of men, but also of women, the very specific gendered violence that women endure in prison, but also about children and young people. Uh, one of the most alarming elements, and we'll be discussing this over the next week here, one of the most alarming element, elements is to see the proliferation of the development of imprisonment of children and young people, particularly in England, and the way in which children and young people suffer and endure uh, their incarceration. We're also talking quite clearly about the racialization of imprisonment, as always has been. Uh, in our society, black prisoners and prisoners from other ethnic backgrounds, including, for example, gypsies and travelers, um, the immigration and asylum as seeker detention deaths, which are partly deaths that are due to absolute despair, but also outside of the prison, but still on license in probation hostels. I'm talking about state hospitals, psychiatric units, where people are often held on indeterminate sentences, where the hope of release at any time is a, a hope that they know will never be realized. The indeterminate sentence becomes one of the most cruel ways of holding anybody within any kind of incarceration. Of course, I want to also mention the north of Ireland. The one thing that unites us is that I too live on settled land. The land that I live in, the six counties of Northern Ireland, was settled by the same English state that settled here. The Irish population were settled. And of course, that is such a significant issue when we start to think about the occupation of those six counties for 30 years until the peace process in the 1990s. A population of, at that time, 1.7 million people lost 3,000 people on the streets, many at the hands of the British Army. From Bloody Sunday to Ballymurphy, where the British Army actually, in, in the communities, summarily took the lives of individuals. Just this week, just this very week, the Ballymurphy inquests have started 41 years on from those summary shootings in that community of 12 unarmed people going about their business over three days. And also, in terms of the north of Ireland, we have to think about those deaths that are a result of direct collusion between paramilitaries that were Unionist, Protestant, Loyalist paramilitaries and their relationship to the British state. That issue of collusion is still yet to be resolved. But it's absolutely patently clear as time goes on. And there are three excellent films just being made, which demonstrate that one, as a result of one group, over 200 people lost their lives in collusion with the British state. So it's important, I think, for us to always remember that imperialism is something that lives on in many other societies. And that imperialism 
is not an imperialism about straightforward, or as it appears, historic occupation, but is more complex than that. And that would be our experience of the six counties of Northern Ireland. What I wanted to start with was, I guess, a way of seeing uh, deaths in the range of circumstances I talked about in terms of their institutional responses. Who responds and how do they respond? Who sets the agenda? Who establishes the priorities, the investigative priorities? Who gathers the evidence? How does that operate? How do the police in their investigation, often investigating their own force, how do they gather that evidence, work with pathologists, work alongside coroners in a blessed trinity of analysis to determine the course of death? That is one of the most significant elements of the work that we do in terms of institutional responses, because the assumption is that the pathologist will stand independent and not have his or her examination and focus shaped by those who've been directly concerned with the death. How is the media managed in these circumstances? Who drips out the information to the media while at the same time restricting information sharing with the bereaved? Earlier this week, talking to bereaved families here as part of this workshop, it became very clear how the information that they received was controlled and contrived. And that is so typical of my experience down the years of deaths in contested circumstances. How are families prepared for the inquest and how is the inquest conducted? There might be coroners here, and you know only too well that the coroner's process is a managed process. That in that court, there are, in contested deaths, there are very specific interests. And those interests, historically, are part of the institutionalized state or state institutionalized interests. We have verdicts, you have findings. But how are the verdicts shaped? What, what constitutes the language of the verdict? What constitutes the focus of the verdict? And how is the evidence selectively chosen by the coroner in order to shape the findings that you have here? And the one big difference is that in all contested deaths, we have juries. And now after campaigning for over 30 years, we've managed to have juries being able to add riders to their verdict. So cases that I've been a witness in, uh, in, in recent years, particularly deaths in custody, um, particularly deaths of women in custody, where those are so-called self-inflicted deaths, the verdict will be suicide, but it carries an explanatory rider from the jury, based on the evidence that they hear, of the pressures and the problems faced within the jail by those women. So in that situation, the rider is a powerful connector to the family that their loved one didn't just take their life. They took their life in duress. Often four, five, six paragraphs of condemnatory response from juries. I've seen juries applauded out of inquests because of the sensitivity of 11 jurors delivering a narrative verdict which demonstrates that although the person took their own life, that the context in which they took it was one which they condemned. United Campaigns for Justice would be the foundation of an organization inquest that I was one of, the, one of those founding members of. What we were concerned about at that point were deaths in contested circumstances and a process which we called adversarial wolf in inquisitorial sheep's clothing. In other words, once we got into the court, and we, it was a, it's a court of inquiry, it of course is not like a normal court where you have guilt 
uh, as being the major objective, but it actually is. And so in that sense, the inquisitorial process is conducted in an adversarial way. The families in that situation we discovered, and of course it's been maintained ever since, uh, marginalized and excluded. They're denied access to legal representation and legal aid in our system. So they have to come to court with no equality of arms, particularly if the prison service and prison guards or the police service and police guard and, and police officers are represented either by their union or by the, or, or by the coffers of the state. They are alienated from the process, often at the worst moment in their lives, when they're trying to come to terms with the reality of the death of their loved one, even if they've waited a year or two years for their inquest, that alienation is part of their suffering, part of their endurance. So campaigns for truth and acknowledgement grew out of contested deaths. We founded inquest, two of us, plus a whole group of families. And that came in 19, we met first in 1979, was established in 1980-81, and now has become the most significant movement uh, in, in the British Isles in terms of inquests. And of course, it stops at the border of Ireland. Catherine Chadwick and myself first wrote the very first critical um, book on coroner's inquests and deaths in custody. And we did that by examining in depth 16 different cases in quite different circumstances and working with the, fam with the families, not to produce an academic text, but a, a text that could be useful, not only to future, for, to future families, but also reflected very clearly the stories of the families we were telling. And I want to just skip quickly. Some of you will know that in the 15th of April, 1989, there was a, an FA Cup semi-final played at a neutral venue, soccer final, 54,000 people attended. And at that, uh, that, at that football game, fans who'd been corralled by the police and escorted to the stadium developed a major crush outside in an area no bigger than this room. 24,000 people had to go through that, through, through that space. There was no filtering, no stewarding of the crowd by the police, and the turnstiles became jammed. An open uh, exit gate was opened, gate C, and the fans who had no knowledge of that stadium because it was a neutral stadium, walked down a one in six gradient tunnel without knowing that at the bottom of that tunnel in two central pens, and I mean pens, pen to the side, pen to the front, no way back up the tunnel, they went into those central pens. And as a consequence, 96 men, women and children were killed over 400 were seriously injured, thousands traumatized, and many have since died prematurely. The fans were universally blamed. Within a week, that was the story that went around the world. But the stories that came from those who had been involved were quite different. However, we went through a judicial inquiry the cause was seen to be overcrowding, and incredibly, it found that there was a failure in policing. But that cut no ice. The criminal and disciplinary investigations against the police ran for two years. There were no prosecutions, no disciplinary actions. The inquest, at that time, the longest inquest in legal history, ran for nearly a year, or just over a year. The evidence was partial, and remarkably, reversing the failure in policing from the judicial inquiry, the verdict that was returned was accidental death. It was clearly one that was guided by the coroner. Then came civil actions. Then came a judicial review of the inquest verdicts. Then came a judicial scrutiny of new evidence. None of this cut any ice. And yet the story was one that was entirely different. Why am I telling this story now? Not just because I've researched it and I'm close to the families and I'm close to the processes. I'm telling it because this lifts the discussion into the state, but away from what, we, what I would have seen as the regular form of, or the institutionalized form of deaths in custody and deaths in other contested circumstances. 
Ten years passed and nothing happened. And then, in 2010, a decision was taken to establish an independent panel of inquiry. I headed the research on that, on that, on, on that inquiry. The research was based in my university. Universities do have uses, and that was one of them. And the way in which that operated was for two years, two and a half years, and we came out with 153 detailed findings, 12 chapters. We had access to 12, to, sorry, to 2 million documents. The 2 million documents came from over 50 different organizations. And we reversed entirely the, and the context and the outcome of Hillsborough. There was a clear and present danger in approach, access, terraces, pens, evacuation. They ran a known risk. The emergency response, unprepared, poorly executed. And then, even though we didn't have the bodies, we were able to demonstrate from the material that we did have that 41 people could have been saved with an earlier, with an earlier intervention. This was absolutely crucial because the previous inquest had stated all would have died within four to five minutes. So none of the rescue services um, evidence was heard in the inquests. The other issue was that we were able to demonstrate that alcohol played no part. Why was that important? It was important because in the early days, the argument was put forward that many fans arrived ticketless under the influence of drink and in that situation were violent. There was no evidence of that, even the televisual evidence. We found that the investigations had all and each been deficient, that there had actually been corruption of evidence, a direct corruption of evidence with the police changing their statements. We had access to the differential statements. That the dead had been criminalized, criminal records checked run on all of them. The coroner's inquiry was flawed. The review and alteration we found not only of the South Yorkshire police statements, and the 2,000 of those had gone through review and alteration, but we discovered that all of the ambulance officers' statements had gone through a process of review and alteration also. And of course, we were able to draw the links directly between how the police formed the, the, the vision and formed the whole reconstructed Hillsborough and manipulated the media right down to finding the very faxes that had been sent by certain police officers to the media outlets and how the media outlets then passed them on directly to, um, to, to, the, uh, to the newspapers. The disclosed documents, we argued in the 400-page report, you can't get it online at the moment because the case is alive and they've taken it down. The disclosed documents show that multiple factors were responsible for the deaths of the 96 victims of the Hillsborough Char tragedy and the fans were not the cause of the disaster. It is only with this transparency that the families and survivors who have behaved with such dignity can, with some sense of truth and justice, cherish the memory of their 96 loved ones. That led immediately to the inquest verdicts being, be being quashed when in the High Court, the argument was put, by, or the decision was put by the Lord Chief Justice that the truth will be brought to light. Those who died will be vindicated. But most importantly, that all the inquisitions will be quashed. The new inquests were held between 2013 and 2016. These are now by far and away the longest inquests ever held costing millions of pounds, with over 20 interested parties in those inquests. And after two years, the verdict came. The coroner's summing up lasted from February to April, and you can imagine the toing and froing of all of the, the, the detail of that summing up between the different legal representatives. There were over 100 legal representatives in court on any given day. And the verdict that was returned was not accidental death, but that all who died had been unlawfully killed. And in the narrative verdict, the jury decided that there were 25 contributory factors found against the police, the stadium owners, the safety engineers, the local authorities, 
and the ambulance service. And most of all, most important of all, for the people of Liverpool, for the families, for the survivors, did the fans contribute in any way? No, was the jury foreperson's reply. No, they were exonerated forever. This led to the Criminal Investigation, Independent Police Complaints Commission investigation, 400 full-time officers, I mean, imagine this, working now for six years on this case. There has never been a case of this magnitude in, in uh, legal history in England and Wales, or Scotland and Ireland for that matter. The prosecutions were announced for June 2017, and this is one of the only sites that I can actually talk about the case, because I'm under investigation myself for breaching the DPP rules back in my home. So, important about this, why have I talked about Hillsborough in such detail? Why am I connecting it to all the other deaths work that I do? Because what I think is important is about how we break the silence. How the view from below becomes the view that is based on our bearing witness, as we've heard tonight, bearing witness to the circumstances of those deaths, both the long-term historical cir circumstances of colonization, of people being pushed, for, pushed out from their homes, of people living under duress, of people being marginalized within their own land. Bearing witness to that, recording that, being able to show, and the work is remarkable that we've heard tonight, being able to show, not just dramatically, but with real insights and knowledge, precisely what is happening in our name. Hearing testimonies, hearing those testimonies of people right across the board who have suffered and endured the pain of death of their loved one and how those testimonies are the unquestionable truth. Not the truth that is discussed in a court of law that is argued over, but the truth of bereavement, the truth of loss. Recovering that truth as part of the project, the recovery, truth recovery is absolutely essential. We're going through that very process at the moment in Ireland, the importance of truth recovery not just so that a family can actually come to terms with the truth that they have always known, but that the society, the broader society, will benefit from understanding its legacy, its history. But most of all, for me, it's challenging institutional deceit. What we're talking about when we see the deaths in custody uh, situation taken into the coroner's court is institutional deceit. It's a deceit that becomes institutionalized in the process. And I've sat through so many inquests in so many different circumstances where the lies are actually clear to anybody who cares to listen. And where often brought in handcuffs from jail, prisoner witnesses giving evidence about the death of one of the people on their wing will be automatically discounted why? Because the prisoner comes in a prison shirt and is wearing handcuffs. In other words, that marginalization itself becomes part of the deceit. So, how would I argue for a change in the system? What I would say, in the, certainly in the medium term, is the case for independent panels. Hillsborough, I, I know all of the the, the potential dangers of independent panels, but what Hillsborough taught me and how we worked on Hillsborough with my own research team at the heart of finding of truth discovery was we were able to scrutinize all documents held by state agencies, to conduct independent documentary analysis of the causes, the context, and the consequences of contested deaths. Not just thinking about the immediacy of the death, but what is the broader causation? What is the historical location in which that death occurs? What is the immediate context? And what are the consequences for families? What are the consequences, consequences for community? 
when we come down to understanding the full impact of deaths in contested circumstances. To produce a comprehensive report that informs public understanding. That is the right to know. We all should share a responsibility for knowing. It's no use for any of us to turn and say, that's really sad, that's happening in our society. It's happening in our name. It's paid for by our taxes. The investigative procedures fail in our name, fail supported by our taxes. So a comprehensive way of being able to demonstrate the reality and truth of contested deaths is about asserting public understanding. With bereaved families and consulted and informed throughout, not patronised, not treated as outsiders on their own, uh, on, in, their own, in their own deaths, but consulted and informed throughout, with full and open disclosure of all relevant documents. Disclosure of findings first to the bereaved. The bereaved should hear for the very first time, as we did with Hillsborough, bringing them all together one morning in a, in a safe space to go through the findings before anybody else, newspapers, anyone else, actually heard those findings. And also, where it's appropriate, particularly in mass deaths, but also in individual deaths, there are confidential personal reports on the medical evidence. Those confidential personal reports should not be the property of the state. They should be the property of families. So that, for me, is the way, the bridge, if you like, to ultimately dismantling the coronal system. Why? because we have to learn from our past internationally. Ariel Dorfman talking about the disappeared in Chile. They found a way of speaking out, the men and women, whose voices have now reached us, decided that they could not live with themselves if they did nothing. They could not stain their lives by remaining silent. They understood that if they witnessed this suffering inflicted on themselves or on others and did nothing, they were, in some twisted way, being turned into accomplices. They had to face the long dark nights when it seemed that nobody cared, when the darkness of apathy seemed to surround them, when their voices did not seem to receive the echo and the answer that they needed. Tonight, in the pre presentations that preceded my talk, we witnessed the echo and the answer. That echo and the answer is something that we all carry responsibility for. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.